Since 1971, Beauty O Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. It is the last week of February. We all know what that means. It's this month in birding. And if you don't know, well, you're either very new or I haven't done a very good job with branding. I suppose both are both are possible. It also means that the chatter at the top of the show is short to get to the good stuff. So I will say, I have one, one announcement to make. I will say that if you are a young birder, if you know a young birder, the deadline to participate in the ABA's Young Birder of the Year mentoring program for this upcoming year is coming up. It is March 1st, so very, very soon. If you want in on that, you'll need to do it in the next couple of days. You can find the link to the Young Birder of the Year mentoring program registration in the show notes. So with that out of the way, onto the panel, we've got Sam DeJarnay, Marietta Estrada, and Frank Izagiri here to chat bald eagles, bonkers and not entirely pleasant QAnon birding mashup and a Black Birders Week temperature check. Good topics, good discussion, all after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the third week of February 2022. One first record to report this week, and with it, an observation of sorts, there have been five first state and provincial records thus far in 2022. Four of those, including this week's new record, have been goals. The outlier is the rufous-backed robin in Colorado. Those goals represent three different species, which is one of those patterns that feels like a pattern, but I'm not sure really is a pattern. Um, anyway, those those birds incidentally are slatyback gulls in South Carolina and New Brunswick, Hearman's gull in North Carolina, and the new one, a glaucus-winged gull in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Glaucus winged is one of the more commonly encountered gulls on the Pacific coast, especially as you get further north, but there are surprisingly few records of this species in the east, the only other east coast record of Glaucus winged gull, and I'm using coast sort of generally as neither of these records are actually on the coast, come from New Hampshire more than a decade ago, though a dozen or so Great Lakes records suggest that it is not impossible to expect to see more in the future. That's all I have this week, so I'll leave it there. If you want a more complete roundup, you can check out the Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash rba, or you can get those rarities as soon as they happen by joining our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook. Uh, it is the last week of the month, and that means it's time for this month in birding. And while February is the shortest month, we do not give you the short shrift with our panel. I'll introduce him now in reverse alphabetical order. Uh, my colleague at the ABA, one of the editors of the ABA's Birding Magazine, as well as a frequent guest here to talk about bird books. We're going to expand his base here uh, on the American Birding Podcast. Welcome, uh, Frank Izagari. Hi, hi, Frank. Hi, guys. Happy to be here. Uh, she is the co-founder of Amplify the Future, the nonprofit that administers the Black and Latinx Birders Fund and director of the Ray Diversity Fellowship. It's Orietta Estrada. Welcome back, Orietta. Hi, thanks for having me. And the host of the always excellent, always be burdened <laughs> podcast, available wherever you find podcasts. It's Sam DeJarnay. <laughs> Hello, Sam. Hi, good to be here. It's great to have you here. Um, let's start with this news item that I don't know if, if you have seen it. Uh, I've, it's kind of been all over the place. Um, speaking of that bizarre security camera video from Western Mexico of the giant flock of blackbirds just absolutely falling out of the sky and, and hitting the road, uh, it's it's really wild footage. It, it looks like someone dumped a bucket of black confetti on the ground. Um, the birds look like they're yellow-headed blackbirds. Some of the birds were killed when they collided with the hard surface of the road. Um, there have been quite a few theories on what caused it. I certainly have my own thoughts. I'm curious what you thought. When you saw this video, just beyond, wow, that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've been asked this question by non-birders, and I've seen this question floating around, like, what, mm -hmm. what happened? Uh, and I think, like, the initial uh, reports were like, oh, it was a lot of pollution, et cetera. But um, 
watching the video, I mean, it's intense. Like it really a is. whole bunch yeah. of birds don't bounce back after flying yeah. towards the ground. So I was thinking maybe they were like in murmuration, like to avoid a predator or something. I'm not exactly clear on what which type of predators would be in that mm-hmm. area, but um, that was my my guess. So, but I mean, pollution maybe I I don't know. When I first saw it, I was like, I didn't really catch the. I don't know. I don't know because I didn't know what I was getting into. Some of the earlier videos were like really cropped closely. And so it was yeah. hard to see exactly what was going on. And yeah. so all I saw was just like some birds and I didn't see a bunch of them fly like back up. And then it immediately went into like handheld footage of the right. the dead birds on the ground. And I was like, oh, those are yellow-headed blackbirds. And <laughs> right, I was like, yeah. ID. Um, <laughs> yeah, <check>. <laughs> <laughs> did that. Um, and, so, and then, so I really didn't like think, I don't know. And then I watched it again and I was like, oh, cool. So it's the end of the world. This is definitely <laughs> a sign of the times are done. You know, uh, what we do were I do expecting next? It. We were expecting well, we it had anyway. the pandemic and now birds are right. flying. That's what I was and now birds are flying and falling out of the sky. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> get your affairs in order, guys. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the, the, those kind of, when those kind of films go viral, it's like, and this one in particular, it's, it's, it's an interesting opportunity for a little bit of psychologizing because as Orieta said, there's like a lot going on in the, you know, you're watching the, 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 the video and all of a sudden there's like a bunch of death and you just see that like a lot of those birds die. Mm-hmm. And it's also, I think Andrew Guttenberg pointed, made this comment somewhere online that I saw just trying to give him credit. It's like, it's actually a huge flock of yellow-headed yeah. blackbirds, which yeah, is in itself thousand, yeah. a really mm-hmm. cool phenomenon to see. It's, it's, it's like, that's one of those things that sometimes, even for birds that we're really familiar with uh, in the ABA area, in parts of um, Latin America, they congregate in like much bigger numbers mm-hmm. than we usually see them when they're up north. And that's sort of like an interesting phenomenon to see too that, that, we, don't, that we don't often see here. Like I know I've seen that with scissor flycatchers and stuff like that as well so that's kind of cool so there's like a lot of stimuli <laughs> happening and then of course like the the area where people really can start to lose it and have um conspiracy theories is like we all we all have this sort of i think or many of us have like an environmental anxiety about like what's going is this some sort of like unnamed sure. environmental terror because we all like feel like it might be that and it's like you know people have the people have thoughtfully pointed out yeah. um, that it is probably, you know, a predator that like a, a peregrine or, or something like that that scared the flock. And because of the way the environment was changed, like there was concrete or whatever, you know, yeah. they hit the concrete and that that probably led to a greater level of mortality for those birds than it might have been if it was a more natural habitat. And mm-hmm. that that is very unfortunate. So there is like a human hand at play on some level that is a kind of environmental terror in, in its way so like there's just a lot going on with that video yeah. and i think that's why a lot of a lot of birders have had to field a lot of questions <laughs> <laughs> yeah for sure yeah, yeah I, I agree with you orieta it's um i think that's a predator i think it's a predator i mean i've seen birds do this sort of thing we here where i live in north carolina um we get uh big flocks of blackbirds with some regularity on the eastern part of the state, uh, red-winged blackbirds, and you know those mixed flocks that have uh, cowbirds and starlings kind of mixed in with them as well, and they, they kind of roll across the fields in these big mm-hmm. murmurations, like picking up the back and flying over the so top, and, like over and over. It's really a cool phenomenon, mm-hmm. um, and I could totally see a peregrine falcon or a merlin or a harrier or something bombing in there and causing absolutely mass panic, and and I think that is what happened with these birds. Um, Something came over on the top and, you know, maybe there is even a second bird coming in and they only felt like they only had one way to go. Mm, mm-hmm. And that was boom down. Oh. And as you said, Frank, into the into the concrete, which is not a good uh, combination. Um, but, yeah, it, it has been neat to see people react to it in some manner or another. It's it's I know I'm sort of interested when those sort of things go go viral and non birding communities in the non-boating yeah. world it is kind of neat to see that you know you get you feel like you get to do a little bit of uh natural history you know interpretation uh, as a birder which is I, I like to do anyway but yeah <laughs> just a wild video and um 
though uh, it might feel like the end of the world. I, I think it's probably <laughs> probably not. Although I don't know if you guys remember a few years ago, there was a similar sort of mass blackbird death. And I think it was in like Alabama or Mississippi or somewhere mm-hmm. like that. And there was some suggestion that it might have been caused by toxins or something. It Now, you know, looking back, now that we've seen, you know, the actual event rather than just the aftermath, it makes me wonder if it wasn't a similar sort of situation. Mm. You know, birds hitting the road um, somewhere and, and causing that, if I recall correctly, it was on the road there as well. That's mm. interesting. Yeah, it's it's really nice to have that engagement with non-birdie <laughs> people. You know, maybe it ends up being like their gateway into birdiness. I don't know. Yeah. But um, <laughs> mass but yeah. death. Mass oh. death. Hey, we'll oh, take we'll take all kinds. <laughs> well, like, <laughs> take whatever we can like, get. <laughs> it, it might like pique their interest. You know, what yeah, I mean? right. like because like I I like Frank how you kind of like deconstructed like the entire scene. Because yeah. for me, I was just like, like a CSI situation. Oh my god! I was just like, oh my god! Like a lot of those birds did not get back up, you know. Yeah. And then Sam was like, you know, with the ID, yellow-headed blackbird. And then Frank, you were like, well, also, you don't really get to see yellow-headed mm-hmm. blackbirds. And I, it occurred to me as you were saying this, I have never even seen a yellow-headed blackbird one, not one. Oh man! <laughs> so, and, yeah. And it's like your one of your favorite it birds. Is. It's it a is. Bird. It's a yeah. So, like, I didn't even process all of that. So, thank you for this session, y'all. That's right, yeah. A lot going on. We all had a part to play. Well done, everybody. I am going to dive into uh, bald eagles. and No pun intended with our last topic. Oh, you got to go. I was thinking because the bald eagles kind of dive when they swoop on, but yeah, that's no, a better one. That's a better, that's one. A better one. one. Let's go. Not with what this. I was Optimist. thinking. <laughs> <laughs> bald eagles and lead bullets, which has been a topic on my mind for a long time, just because mm-hmm. of my uh, history in wildlife rehabilitation. Um, but Audubon put out an article, an article about um, like a recent study that came out from you know some smart people over at the journal of wildlife management looking at several decades of information from wildlife rehabilitation veterinarians state vets and kind of seeing and noticing that there has been a lot of eagles that will come into wildlife rehab and will test positive for lead and or will have straight up lead poisoning and die um, and kind of looking at this, if this could be something that would affect their recovery. So looking into the future, does this have an effect o- mm-hmm. uh, overall on the entire population and not just like localized or individuals? So they did study from 1990 to 2018 across seven states with vet records, wildlife rehabilitation records. Basically, I don't know if anybody knows what lead does to birds. Does it, do y'all know? Have y'all ever seen it? In the kind of broad sense. It's horrific. It's wild. It's really not fun. Um, Basically, a rice grain size amount of lead can cause debilitating damage to birds and and other animals as well. But the rice grain size is is a lot for a bird. Um, And then most of the time, it's fatal. It's one of those things that's been like a controversial subject amongst the hunting world mm-hmm. um and so it's known that lead is not great um but right now it's only banned for waterfowl hunting mm-hmm. though the obama administration tried to you know ban it on all hunting and fishing um on federal land but you know trump's like rolled that back um that and back. so it's still only banned <laughs> in waterfowl hunting except for california is totally banned it makes sense with the California condor there, too. I know that they've been hit really hard, too. Absolutely. And yeah. I think that, you know, with the California condors, I think that that's led to a lot more education around this stuff with the hunting population. For sure. Um, and as well as eagles and just in general, you know, what lead can do to just the environment as well. You know, when lead shots don't land in anything, they do land in the environment and mm-hmm. are never recovered. And that can, you know, have a lot of effect that as well. Most rehabilitation centers will test for lead in every raptor, especially eagles, because of this stuff. Um, And it's a quick blood draw. It takes like two seconds to get the results back. And like in my time in wildlife rehab, 
you wouldn't really even believe how many eagles hmm. came in with lead poisoning or some levels of lead in them, let alone legitimately shot with lead yeah. bullets. And I was hmm. like, I didn't know that you could do that. And they were like, you can't. <laughs> so don't do that. You know, <laughs> Like, don't go shooting bald eagles. So that's another that's, that's a, another issue is like the actual shooting of bald eagles. Hmm. Whether or not hunters know that that's what they're shooting at, that's a different color. Whatever. I don't know. Basically, what they came, they concluded after their research um, is that they did like this giant math problem with some smart math people that I'm like, how do you turn this into a math problem? And I was like, well, <laughs> the smarties did. And a so, good math person can turn anything into a math problem. And, and they did. And they were like, this is a giant math problem. Um, and so they said, yes, lead ingestion over time. And this is how they're they're getting it in the same ways that the California condors do because mm -hmm. yes, eagles are hunters, yeah. but they also will scavenge. And so... Any shot that is in, you know, a book or, you know, a mallard that's never found, the eagles might find it ingested and that's how that happens. And so over time with the ingestion that may not directly poison that animal, but is in their system, can lead to um, like dampering their ability to literally grow and or reproduce. So later down in the, ro in the road, if this continues to be a thing, um, the if some large stressor happens and like environmental or something of the sorts that really starts to impact the species numbers as a whole it will inhibit their ability mm -hmm. to bounce back from that yeah and so like their final point was that you know of all of the <laughs> sometimes very complex environmental situations that are out there this one is preventable with education yeah. and replacing lead bullets with copper bullets and I think that, you know, that's a really easy solution. Um, I thought it was really interesting. And I ended up looking up, you know, what's the difference between a copper bullet and a lead bullet? Yeah. Really and truly, like, what's the benefit? Why are people kind of resistant to it? Is it just education or is there some benefit yeah. to it? And there's not. Literally, there's not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know that some hunters prefer using lead just because it it's a performance thing. Like, it performs better than copper just in terms but it of like a cleaner kill yeah well there you go i mean this is of the propaganda i guess but it doesn't i think most hunters have a, have a pretty strong environmental ethic like they don't want their their hobby to be you know cause the sort of long-term damage to the to the outdoors which is you know they're they're into the outdoors for a lot of the same reasons that we are oh and sure. um do you know about it if you know the harm that lead is causing then you know it stands the reason that for the most part most people most hunters would be like, yeah, this is a relatively easy change I can make to solve this problem. And you know, if you get, you get, you got to educate people. You got to let them know. I think if people saw it with their, you know, or experienced it on their yeah. own, um, like I, I interned and then volunteered at a, at a Raptor rehabilitation center. And like the lead cases were just so heartbreaking, like seeing an animal of like such stature you know and such significance like iconic significance as well like just seeing it just drooping its head having yeah. tremors like its body rolling like i think if it were publicized on a much larger scale i think people would get it i don't think anybody wants to kill eagles right. you know yeah. but yeah. like there are programs in other states like in the western states and i think it's because of the the condor because of like the publicity that the California condor mm, condor mm -hmm. has had that, um, you know, free bullets are offered to hunters, mm -hmm. um, oh, like copper bullets. Copper. Are Good idea. Yeah. Free copper. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know, but, uh, it would be great <laughs> if people could switch. <laughs> I think the article really brought up an interesting point that like, I would love to dive into, not today, but, um, <laughs> you know, I think it's, it's easy for birders, um, who don't hunt or people who don't hunt to read that article and immediately point a finger at hunters, mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. be like, you don't care. Like, look what you're doing right, right. because we love to blame. We have to have somebody to blame, right? <laughs> it's a easy to do. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's really interesting because I see all the time on listservs and like, on like, Facebook groups of people who it's like the age old hunter versus birder right. argument over like 
who cares more about birds and how much do hunters <laughs> right. contribute to conservation by buying licensing? A lot. And they do a lot. And it's just, it's really interesting. And I think that this is, you know, I like that the article kind of ended with the fact that like, hey, you know, really who's to blame here is probably the government for allowing, continuing to allow lead mm-hmm. in anything, right? But, you know, it's just an education matter. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. what can we do as birders if we have to, if we have to blame somebody to educate the yeah. hunting population? I like, right? I like focusing on the solution. Yeah. As to focusing on the problem. <laughs> so there was an interesting article that came out from Audubon it's sort of like a little bit of a history of like how birders used to and now um, find out about rare birds so that they can chase them. And it's kind of like, uh, I have been birding long enough that I was, when I was a wee lad, <laughs> that's when <laughs> that's when the hotlines were, were still, that was yeah. sort of like the, the end of the hotline era. And I, I never, I never called in the hotline myself, but I remember... I am old enough to remember when a, a really <laughs> rare bird, like a vagrant or, you know, like a, a, a high code bird was, that was, that was called a hotline bird. And, yeah. you know, that does like, that does like <laughs> spark memories for me. Oh, it's a hotline bird. You know, it's a bird that you call into the rare bird hotline to find out where it is and like what birds are around, and like what the latest reports are. That's when, that's when you would find out about, um, about the really, really good birds that are around. And I remember like sort of the, when, when my, my mom would take me to, the local Audubon walks, you know, you've been birding for like an hour or something and the sun is higher and it's the, the, the bird walks starts to get into more of like the, the gossipy um, hour of the walk where people are <laughs> talking about like what's around and it's like, well, should we go chase it, chase this bird, you know, after, after the walk is over or whatever. Um, and I remember people talking about uh, what was on the hotline um, and stuff like that. So it's kind of fun to, to see people writing about the author of that that article wrote wrote a cool book by the way about his dad who was like um uh the author is dan copel and he wrote about his father who was like a major world lister like one of the top world listers and um it's it's neat to see people like that writing about these very nostalgic moments for (laughs) because ebert has really changed that and there are a bunch of other technologies that have supplanted the or replaced the 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 hotline, you know, like listservs and 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 social media and all that. Um, so it's it's kind of neat to sort of see that and to to be to be like you know it can make you feel like you got a little bit of cred when you you can remember when when that was a thing <laughs> and it, it's sort of it, I don't know there's like an 80s nostalgia to it or an early 90s yeah, mid 90s that, that's fun nostalgia yeah. yeah do you remember it Nate Yeah I remember yeah. hotlines um, yeah. so my local when I was a kid yeah and this was in the mid 90s. Um, when I was just getting started birding and we were getting involved with the local Audubon chapter, uh, it was, uh, there was even a phone tree. Like if anyone saw mm-hmm, a rare bird, mm-hmm. they would call the next person and hopefully you'd get in touch with the real person or otherwise like you would just let it ring or you call another person. And like, there was like, it was like a branching like phylogenetic tree of like everyone in the club that would get called if a rare bird was seen. When my dad and I, we used to go down to South Texas cause that's where my grandparents lived. And we would call the rare bird alert hotline for uh, the Rio Grande Valley. And that was, um, you know, one of the more famous ones with with Father Tom Pincelli, who had done it for like twenty years, and Father Tom would get on there and he'd he'd tell you where the rare birds were at Santa Ana or Benson or whatever. Um, I don't remember when it stopped, so I went through a period where I kind of stopped birding, and then I came back to it. And then when I stopped birding, hotlines were still a thing. And when I came back to it, they were they were gone. So in that mm. that period, no one everyone stopped using them. But yeah, it's it's kind of a fun memory. I don't know that they were actually really all that effective. I mean, I, I do think that, you know, the WhatsApp groups and the, the, the hourly groups, updates are better, from, a little bit you know, better. The hourly Ebert. updates. And yeah. it's good that people have more access to that. You know, anybody <laughs> for can sure. sign up for the hourly updates. Right. And, exactly. And, you don't have to know the phone stuff. number. Yeah. Yeah. But still, you know, it's, I think like the the big year movie where, you know, Owen Wilson is like in the cafe in Arizona, like bef- bef- before, like pre-dawn. And he's like listening to the hotline somehow <laughs> and and he's like drinks his coffee like, you know gotta go. I think it's like yeah. the nuttings flycatcher or something so it does i don't know it, it 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 does it does um yield some some warm memories i there's guess a, there's a romanticism <laughs> to it i guess right it do, was do you, it was nice to read that it was it, you know um i also i just wanted to ask do we have rights to hotline bling 
hotline brings. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there. I think no. we did okay. like. Okay. Oh, you right, I guess not. Code five. <laughs> <laughs> nice. There, are, we could make a song that yeah, we could have. Right. Oh, right. Yeah. Someone needs to get oh, on yeah. that. So. Yeah, I'm down with Just, that. Yeah. Um, hotline bird. That. Hotline bird. <laughs> So I, I used to volunteer for a local roundup of bird sightings um, uh-huh. called The Voice of the Naturalist. Yeah. Um, and yeah. So that used to actually be a phone line. Um, and I believe they had a tree, a phone tree as well. Yep. But um, it ended up just being <laughs> something that would be published. And yeah. it, I think it just became like email. And I think because of like the amount of work that went into it it's like a lot the of amount work. of unpaid yeah. work that went into it because That's like exactly right it's not just like you're reporting a bird you need the code you need you mm-hmm. need like everything like you need ornithological and people don't find rare birds on your schedule no like they, they get don't. found in like saturday later. afternoons yeah. Yeah. and yeah. after hours and so you have to be ready all the time it's it's a lot of work yeah no As it's, you say, it's intense. work <laughs> yeah no it's totally intense and like you know, I honestly, for me personally, RBAs have been like ruined for me as a woman <laughs> of color in my area. Um, I'm just kind yeah. of like over them. I've been told so many times like, oh, or Orietta, there's not enough space for you on the RBA or, oh, please don't tell anybody I told mm. you about this bird, Orietta. Oh, and, yeah, like, that still happened. You know, and like at, at the time, like I was getting a lot of this was like... I, I was like 13th in the state, according to Eber, you know, and I only say that because it's like, haven't I earned the access to the RVA by being yeah. 13th in Maryland? There, like, there is something to be said about, you know, the, the, the democratization of bird information, uh, which I think is really useful. You know, I, it, mm-hmm. so, and there was a time when that stuff was very siloed. Right. You had to know the people to know the people. And I don't know if it was I mean, there there may have been some intention about it, too. But a lot of it was just this is the way it is. And this is the way we'll continue yeah. to do it because we yeah. don't want to we don't want to change, which is stagnation is the enemy of, of so much progress in, in a lot of areas. Totally. Um, but, you know, eBird comes along and that stuff is called completely public and you don't need to know the right people. To, to know about the birds, which is, you know, one of the, well, one of the great things about eBird and, and just those groups in general. Yeah, I don't oh, think fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. Sam, you, you go. Sam, you go. Sam, you go. I don't participate in Rare Bird Anything. I'm not on any of it because <laughs> I've heard story after story after story after story from mostly women and femme birders who mm. are not given information or they are it's just really toxic environment within these like whatsapp mm. groups or whatever mm. um and those same people who like to gatekeep information will end up in their dms they still find them, a way. yeah where did you see that owl? Yep. you know what yep. i mean mm-hmm. and i'm like oh mm. oh yeah let's get into it no i don't <laughs> i just like i refuse to be a part of it and i don't think that mm. maybe it's it's less gatekeepy because they're like yes people have access to these whatsapps but let me tell you i would not know the whatsapp number fair enough off the top yep. of my head right that's now fair enough. unless i knew someone that's who was true. in it so yeah and it takes concerted effort from the group administrators to make sure that that information is out there um yeah yeah yeah, no, I, I I hear you on that. I, I agree with you. I co-founded um, an idea birders group that's inclusivity, diversity, equity, and accessibility. And I also co-founded an RBA because myself, other people of color, people with disabilities, and people who just weren't like accepted as like the in crowd of birding, mm-hmm. the MD birding scene, were just like so tired of being like denied access to birds. We created this RBA. Because we were just like, whatever, <laughs> we're not going to wait to be included <laughs> by people who consistently tried to exclude people like me from conservation spaces. So it was really frustrating as a person of color because like there were people I was just so tired of people who, you know, without missing a beat, just wanted to dominate the RBA and wanted to change it and make it work for themselves. And it's just like, mm. you know, we had specific mm-hmm. things that you needed to put in Mm. your reporting on the RBA, uh, like, you know, what the terrain is like, you know, is this like city Mm -hmm. center? Is it, Mm. is it remote? Like what's the parking situation? Like, you know, things, things that people who were newer to birding wouldn't, 
really know or people who needed those extra details right. for safety would need to know. But right. but yeah, I'm yep. a reformed um R RBA for <laughs> yeah, I've just it's just been completely ruined for me. And it's still very much mm. a closed community in Maryland. Um and I just I just ran out of steam trying to change it. So I'm over it. <laughs> yeah. I sort of understand where you're, where you're coming from. Yeah. It, what do you think needs to be done to make these spaces more uh, accessible? I have a thought. It's just more I information? Yeah. <laughs> My thought is, is that like I, the way we bird needs to change. Like it's, it's just, you mm -hmm. know, chasing, chasing rare birds is fun. I would be down if I could, you know, whatever, like I'll, I'll go down to California if I have the time to find something, you know what I mean? <laughs> But like, it's, it's not necessary. It's not, it just, it really adds to the like weird competition sport of it all when this is just a hobby for a lot of people who just like birds. And so it like less emphasis on the rarities and more emphasis on mm -hmm. the, the birds that you see every day in your backyard are just as great. Um, and that it's okay mm -hmm. if you can't go find a rare bird. Literally, you cannot, you don't have access. Um, and it's okay if mm -hmm. you like don't want to, right? And I think that, you know, there's just, there's so mm -hmm. much emphasis on rare birds and like good birds from a lot of seasoned birders that mm -hmm. I just, that conversation just needs to shift and change that will help with the want to contain information around it. Yeah. You know? No, I see that. Yeah, it's hard because there's obviously there's obviously a lot of excitement from a lot of different yeah. angles for those sorts of birds, and sometimes that can turn into uh, mm. motivation. I guess you know it, it can it can influence a lot of what we think of as important in birding. Yeah, no, I hear you. We did we I, did I, something I at, at birding that I think was I think it's a really good thing we did, and it's been uh, in effect for a few years now. That's that's in the spirit of that, which is we have the milestones column. That's been a right. big part yeah, of birding for a long time. It's not something that I did. This is something that Ted Floyd and Yuana Saraton did. Yuana Saraton is an associate editor at Birding, and it's her it's her column that she runs. And basically, milestones was like ABA members could submit a milestone. Like, let's say you got your 500th bird or whatever. I got my 500th bird, and it was here, and it was this bird, and this date, blah, blah, blah. You could tell a little story. But we changed the column to celebrations. It's called celebrations now. And people can still submit milestones and they often do but you could also just any moment that you had birding that was significant or any bird that you saw maybe it was something in your yard that wasn't like a particular you know uh, number or anything that you felt like was noteworthy and you wanted to share with uh, the ABA membership and the readership of birding magazine a anyone can submit something like that now and and I'd, I I think the idea behind that was to to be more in that spirit of like, well, you know, rare birds are fun to chase, but we need to uh, make sure that birding as, you know, lowercase birding is a space, uh, a hobby where people can bird and appreciate birds in any way that they want to and still be able to feel like they're part of a community. Because, you know, as we've been discussing, like, yeah, the rare birds are fun and list building is fun, but there are some tensions and there are problems and it's not the same, not even close to the same experience for everybody. So I do think that that's mm -hmm. an important um, value that people, that birders should keep in mind that, you know, we got to make sure that everybody feels like the way that they bird and they want to bird and that they can bird is valid. Oh yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. I've definitely had uh, people turn their nose up at me literally because they were like mm. oh well she's new I'm not going to waste my time talking birds mm -hmm. with her and like you know I wasn't new but it didn't matter they just saw me uh and the way I look and right. I didn't Perception, look like everybody yeah. else and I wasn't dressed like everybody else it's like on the spectrum like birding's on the spectrum like everybody should be welcome I mean yeah, how many sure. times have I seen a rare bird because somebody who didn't know what they were looking at that was a rare bird found it first many times yeah many we'll times many times time. <laughs> like we need we need yeah. non-birders and new birders and new perspectives and like people in different areas to like help us find the birds you know and you know they're all good birds but yep. you know what i'm saying 
what does freedom birders say? Beginner mindset. <laughs> yeah, beginner minded. There That's, you go. Right. That's, That's right. right. Freedom birders. <laughs> Yeah, I do think that happens a lot. I mean, it's it's kind of a tricky thing. Like, I think a lot of birders, once they're in a group setting, they'll make really snap judgments about who has authority and who has knowledge. And people aren't even really mm-hmm. aware of, they're not aware of, like, how they're basing those decisions and <laughs> not always um, pretty. Unconscious mm-hmm. bias is real, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I've definitely had people take over my bird walk, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So disrespectful. But yeah, unconscious bias and birding is a real issue. Conspiracy theorists cause butterfly sanctuary and birding site to close. Weird. So what do conspiracy theorists and butterflies and birds have in common? Nothing. But right now they have a lot in common. (laughs) (laughs) So um, the National Butterfly Sanctuary is a decades-old conservation area for wild butterflies and for birds and for other pollinators. And after being the target of conspiracy theories related to human trafficking by QAnon conspiracy theorists, they became the target of threats, threats which have been deemed to be credible. So to date, there's no evidence that the sanctuary or anybody working at the sanctuary has anything to do or is involved with human trafficking. So you might be thinking, like, you know, if you've never visited this sanctuary, where have I heard about this butterfly sanctuary before? This butterfly sanctuary in the Rio Grande Why? What? Well, I totally get that, like, art collective memories can be short, especially since, like, we've been going through, like, so much stuff in the last several years as a society. So. I'll remind everybody. This is the same sanctuary that filed a lawsuit against the previous presidential administration over Mm -hmm. border wall construction along the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, The founder of We Build the Wall, which was eventually charged with defrauding thousands of donors (laughs) who donated to that nonprofit. Most predictable uh, (laughs) charge ever. Very publicly accused the butterfly sanctuary Okay. Okay. Let's do this. It's a butterfly sanctuary. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Butterflies. Okay. Butterflies. Oh my God. Of supporting, like, so he, he accused them of supporting illegal immigration and the trafficking of women and children for sex. And like, I don't know about you all, but I'm getting like strong Pizzagate vibes here. So like, yeah, it sounds a lot like like that. So you know, the Butterfly Center. It's a Butterfly Center. I have to keep emphasizing that because this is just <laughs> like, oh my god, lots of nice butterflies uh, too in South. Unbelievable. Texas. Yeah. Ended up su- They ended up suing <laughs> that organization, um, the one that was charged with defrauding um, thousands of donors. Um, and so, like, this all came to a head when a congressional candidate came to the center and demanded to be given access to the river so they could, and I'm making air quotes, um, see the illegals crossing on the raft. So I the, am the, dead. I, what? Oh, 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 get, it, oh, it gets worse. So the executive director was like, yo, you got to leave. And then the congressional candidate attacked them, like allegedly attacked them, like tackled them. Um, Whoa. So the threats, so the threats are so significant to the ED safety and to the staff and to the visitors that they had to close indefinitely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is such a bizarre that's, that's and bonkers, for a it's a bonkers story. Um, I, I know that uh, Mariana Trevino Wright has been a, a loud voice anti-border wall. Um, that's uh, the ED. That's the, the executive director. That's yeah. correct. Yeah, she's the executive director of the National Butterfly Center. Um, she was involved, you know, uh, I guess it was two years ago now, um, when there was that the, the number of protests down there uh, with local birders. I think uh, former ABA president Jeff Gordon was down there as well. It was a they, there was a real big push to get a lot of the naturalist community out there and 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 you know against this border wall. We did a podcast episode about it with um, with Tiffany Kirsten. Um, I encourage people to go back and listen to that. Plug plug aside. Um, it this is this is so wild. And I know Mariana has been like a very loud voice and you know 
prominent voice and, and sort of therefore, you know, people are aiming, directing at her. Um, but that, I mean, th- this is just so weird. And uh, hopefully the indefinite closure of this Butterfly Center, I, I don't I, I don't know how long it has lasted. Hopefully it is, this stuff will blow over as quickly as it blew up. Just a strange story uh, for a place that a lot of birders who have been down to South Texas know well. A lot of cool birds are found at the <laughs> Butterfly Center. It's right next to Benson State Park. It's a really nice uh, birding location in addition to being a cool place to find butterflies. But and it goes to show that birding is not uh, immune from the greater forces uh, of the of the of the world. <laughs> and it's so crazy because, like, I think a lot of birders know this already and have a sense of this. But that spot is like the best place in the entire United States to see butterflies. There's just There's incredible cool butterfly. butterfly. I haven't been, but I've like you know. I haven't been to South Texas actually, and it's oh, it's man. probably like the area that is closest to me that would be like that's where I could really rack up some lifers. And even so, like that's the <laughs> this is like a little mini confession, but I'm almost like more most excited to go because I like Lepidoptera a lot. I'm almost most excited to to check out the Butterfly Center. And I like I saw that story and I was like, oh, I just saw the headline like closed and definitely like, oh my god, like. Am I never going to yeah. get to go there? Like yeah. my my fantasy butterfly is the red bordered <laughs> pixie. I would just love to see one of those um, really, really incredibly beautiful butterfly that you can see there and it's rare. Yeah. For people who don't know, um, pe- bur- butterfly people go to the South Texas for the same reason that bird people do. There's all these cool little butterflies that sneak up just barely mm-hmm. across the border into South Texas and you can see them. I don't think there's any sort of American Butterfly Association list that you can <laughs> keep, but um, it's the easiest way to see some of those really neat uh, Latin American butterflies. And it's just like, it's just like thus, it's like the great, it's like if you rolled like the top five best birding spots in the U.S. like into one, it's like that, that's the place. Like, yeah, it's just crazy that it's happening there. You know, it's just. That's <laughs> so sad. Yeah. 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 Um, I haven't haven't looked recently. I don't know what the current closure situation is, but um, you know, as I said, fingers crossed it's shorter rather than longer. I feel like this is like kind of a speaks to how how do I say this? Like the trickle down effect of what xenophobia and just like bigotry has. Like this is when I like it trickled down into butterflies. <laughs> butterflies. We cannot emphasize oh, the butterfly aspect okay. and enough. Birds. Oh my god! And yeah. Birds, and it's yeah. just so upsetting yeah. that somebody walked in there and 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 was like so like set on something that was inaccurate and not true. Pendulum was swung a certain way with you know the anti-border wall stuff, and the people were like, "Oh hell no, we're gonna swing it all the way over back here." <laughs> It's just really alarming to me when when, you know, people will accuse a place that serves butterflies of human trafficking. I think that's wild and I think that's absurd. It's a really like absurd kind of story that we can kind of laugh at, but it really has some serious, serious things to be really aware of in this in this current political climate with big air quotes around that. It it is very scary because it just you can see the evidence that now with the way the internet is and the current cultural climate, you can make really absurd claims like that on the internet, and they will spread and they'll attain a certain level of virality, and they have power mm-hmm. because look what happened. Like it it can affect the world. Mm-hmm. So that is what's very frightening about it. Yeah, and it's not even like the specific people who right. like make these claims who have who are like making the threats or like being held accountable like for the threats like it's like they have an entire like Mm -hmm. web of people who are ready to believe them yes right and will make these threats scary (laughs) yeah i mean like who take it really seriously yeah 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 and it's all essentially from people wanting to protect these natural areas, the very few natural areas that are left in that part mm-hmm. of the country. Um, they are sort of this little string of green jewels in a very arid and agricultural and development heavy part of the um, part of the country. If people have ever visited and birded mm-hmm. uh, the Rio Grande Valley, it's, it's a lot of development, a lot of agriculture, oh, yes. and then these amazing little green dots <laughs> of habitat, which are just absolutely 
jam packed with cool birds. And the National Butterfly Center and bugs, I should say, butterflies too. And uh, the National Butterfly Center is one of these places. And and ugh, it just goes to show, you know, it's all we got to protect mm-hmm. these places with everything we have, and hopefully fight yeah. this sort of disinformation mm-hmm. campaign in, in in the way that it affects our um, the places we love. So we'll move on to the question of the month. It is it is Black History Month. We are two years out of the first, well, a year and a half out of the first Black Birders Week. It's certainly not the only time to talk about the issues that Black Birders Week brought up, but um, it's as good a time as any. Orieta, I know you're doing a ton of work with Amplify the Future and the Black and Latinx Birder Scholarship Fund. Where are we? Where Let's do a temperature check. Where are we on that sort of stuff? What, is, what do the efforts look like? Um, what can we continue to do? What can we continue to, to work on? Well, I just wanted to let you know that we solved all the problems. <laughs> oh, wow. It only took 18 months. And we wrote a book. Congratulations, and everybody. About how to do it. About how to do it. It's time for a victory tour. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I would never have guessed, but yeah, amazing. <laughs> Whew, that, was, that was a lot. Yeah. No, um, so Amplify the Future we're, we're going strong. We, we always tell everybody we're just Great. getting started. And, um, you know, the application period for the Black and Latin Experters Scholarship Fund is open and it closes March 15th. Um, so visit amplifythefuture.org. You can apply if you're an undergraduate student who identifies as Black or Latinx and you're studying in any of the STEAM fields. So that's science, technology, engineering, arts, math. So also we have a brand new grant added to Birders Fund. Oh my gosh. Very nice. So um, Birders Fund, I should say, is the committee that oversees the scholarship and the grant. Um, our fellow panelist, Sam Desjardins, is the co-chair synergy of there. Birders Fund. <laughs> so uh, among like, you know, the many other amazing things that Sam does. So, um, okay. Where was I? Sorry, I just like mini grant. Okay, sorry, I just <laughs> start talking about Sam, and I'm just like I just start gushing. So I'll just stop. I love you, Sam. I didn't know going into this episode that that was going to be. A yeah, yeah, a we got news for you. Worked out really yeah. well. Yeah, we do. So okay, the grant, the grant. Okay, so the grant is for graduate students who have either a project-based or non-project-based relationship to bird conservation, and it's for those graduate students. So you could be like an MA or an MS student who identify under the imperfect term by POC. So that's black birders, indigenous birders, or birders of color, or any intersections thereof. So, and if you have never heard of Amplify the Future, we are a black and brown-led organization whose mission is to center black conservationists and naturalists, as well as be part of the larger movement of by POC liberation. So, and I have to say, like having Sam as a co-chair and deeply involved in the work we do is just like such an honor. I love working with you, Sam. So. Oh, don't do that. <laughs> I'm going to do it. <laughs> yes, we, we've definitely seen the the birders that have gotten the grants in the past or the conservationists that have gotten the grants over the last uh, couple of years. It looks like they're off to some doing some great work yeah. and um, always nice to get their faces out in front of the conservation community and, and show where we um where we want to be. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really exciting. And, you know, Amplify the Future um, is also working together um, with Freedom Birders. Uh, that's a really wonderful project. You can check them out on social media at Freedom Birders. Um, and yeah, Sam, do you have anything that you would like to? Let's answer that temperature question, temperature check question. And then I do have something to add. Temper- uh, temperature check. I think that we are so far from so far any type of goal <laughs> so far but what i will say is that i am forever grateful and humbled by the effects of the original black birders week in bringing so yeah. many birders of color together oh yeah and my announcement For is sure. that <laughs> For the first time since COVID, Always Be Birding will be having a mini birding tour live in person in New York City in April for Mm, BIPOC birders 
together finally Great. after so much online yeah, social right? media, oh like friendships and groups and organizations <laughs> forming and bonds and community. Yeah. I am bringing it to New York because there's a heavy, heavy amount of birders of color in New York. Absolutely. And I am so excited to offer this and being um, supported by Amplify the Future and then um, my grant. I got a big grant to do this from Liberated yeah. Pass Grant. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Um, But anyway, and so I'm being supported by those two groups um, and we'll be, you know, in there from April 20th to April 24th with a special appearance in Philly with In Color Birding Club on the 23rd. Look out for more details. Yep. We'll have a link to where those will be in the notes. Oh, that's great. Congratulations, Sam. It's always nice when great things happen to great people. (laughs) Whenever we're talking about Blackbirders Week and and the many different initiatives and um, partnerships that have sprung from Blackbirders Week. I was one of the things that was so great is it was a catalyst mm-hmm. for such a critical examination of accessibility that non-white people have to environmental spaces and environmental hobbies. It inspired so many different um, examinations and assessments and movements. And that's just history. No one can take that away. Like, that happened. And the people who were involved in that can, can always be proud of that. It was just an incredible, incredible moment. I think in all of environmental history. That's the first thing. And the second thing, the question becomes, and we've already brought it up on this podcast, is have things changed? Like have have things gotten better? Because that's what Blackbirds Week was about in large part. It was it's let's talk about the issues so that people know them. People really can't say they don't know them. Let's talk about it and let's get that information out there publicly. So we gotta keep answering asking and trying to answer those questions. That's very important for every birder. I am gonna challenge you, Frank. I think that okay. this isn't a negative challenge. What I'm going to do is I'm going to change the narrative a little bit because Black Birders Week was not necessarily about um, uncovering something. It's already known. We, you know, Black Birders Week was about community for Black birders and not about making the amount of discrimination and racism known. And that was a byproduct because the way in mm. which white birders took that information in from being outside of the community that was being brought together for Black Birders Week. It was about letting the world, yes, of birders know that there are Black birders and then for Black birders to come together within a community. And I think that you know, the temperature check is, is that, yeah, there is more that we can do. I think all your questions are great, Frank, that need to be answered. But like, those are questions and discussions and answers that need to come from the white community within birding. Black birders, BIPOC birders already know the issues. We already know the solutions and we're doing them ourselves. Um, And so I think that there's two separate narratives that come out of Black Birders Week um, and then one narrative is is from the eyes of white birders and how they took that information in um, as to be new, as to be, you know, it kind of coincides with the year 2020 being this like, I've heard it so many times and I hate it. The, 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 the great white awakening. And I hate it so much because that's <laughs> yeah. the narrative that's being taken in by hearing about black brown indigenous struggles and harm that is somehow awakening white people whoa my microphone sorry i got really amped about that um but like you know it's just the the thing i challenge frank is the narrative in behind that in that you know it's um yes it's a correct narrative but it's not the whole narrative yeah i think that's totally fair i mean it's 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 a skewed perspective the perspective saying like oh okay well now all the the challenges are known. Well, that's from a white perspective. Mm-hmm. That's not from the perspective mm-hmm. of the black birders, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's totally valid. And I'm glad you said mm-hmm. that. It also like opened the door for the rest of us <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> who who are not identifying as white to have some space too. So many of us have been working toward equity and 
working towards dismantling the status quo. And we have been doing that in our work for as long as we have been living (laughs) and, Mm -hmm. and all the spaces that we occupy and, you know, the space that I occupy is the conservation birding writing area, you know, and Black Birders Week for me really made a lot of white birders be like, huh? And I was like, <laughs> see, work. Yeah. see, <laughs> like, you know, so I, mm-hmm. I benefited greatly from Black Birders Week in that regard. I will say, though, on the two years following, um, what I've seen is a lot of performative action. Like panic. Um, we had deep mm, panic, mm. you know. So we had like <laughs> so much like um, <laughs> support and like so much uplifting of like our own work at Amplify the Future. And then like over time, we've seen that just like slow down and like people become more complacent. But mm-hmm. we're still mm-hmm. here. We're still doing the work. We're always going to do this work. And I think our communities are growing stronger because of it. But I don't know. It's kind of like what Black History Month has kind of become for like Mm -hmm. the masses, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think in my experience with my podcast and all other things, I think that there are, because of the year 2020 and Black Birders Week and just a general movement that's happening, Um, I think that I've come into contact with several organizations who suck (laughs) and I've come into contact with several organizations who do not suck um, and who Mm. are trying very, very hard to do things differently. And Mm -hmm. um, I think what happens is, is that people don't understand the amount of deep work that it takes on an individual level Mm-mm. and then within your organization or your company or whatever you do your project to do any type of dismantling or liberation. Right. And so I think that mm. people don't understand that and they get overwhelmed by it because it's painful, right? It's really painful to, to come to terms mm-hmm. with our history and, and our role in it. Right. Um, and so I, I, you know, there's no, there's no playbook on it. You know, it can be both. I think it, we're very far from where we are or where we want to be. And there are people who are trying. I had like this really wild experience with a Gen Zer. This is like 19 year old kid who is like, I'm doing a project with them. They're out here in Portland. And I had like the best time with this like white dude. (laughs) Oh my God, like the the kids are all right. You know what I mean? Like, I think they'll be fine, you know? Like, he did everything so well. And, like, he, but we talked for two hours, you know what I mean? At length, at deep length, about a lot of things. And we relationship built first. And so that's like, anyway. I'm, I'm, I could talk about this all day and I do on my podcast. So I listen. It's always the burden. That's right. Let's do a podcast. Good plug. Yeah. That's right. Well, one thing that I, I, a quote that came out of, I can't remember if she said it during Black Birders Week or if it was in an interview in Birding. That's my, might be where it was from. Danielle Bellany said, she said, Black Birders Week is our lives. Mm-hmm. Black Birders Week is our lives. And I think about that sometimes. I was just like, you know, when we're thinking about how, uh, organizations take this sort of like cyclical approach to to these issues and how that's not really adequate. It's not adequate. I, that quote really addresses that. Blackbirds Week is our lives. And, and, and that's just something that really stuck with me. I want to thank Orietta Estrada, Sam DeJarnay, and Frank Izagiri uh, once more for stepping in and, and having this conversation with us. Um, you can find all their stuff. I'll we'll have a link to it in the show notes. It's, it's too much to actually <laughs> talk about. And I can't remember all of it because I'll leave some of it out. Um, thank you so much to all three of you. And I uh, hope you have a great, uh, great March and uh, great spring. Thanks, Nate. Thank you. Thank Ciao. you, Nate. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support it by supporting the ABA with your membership. There are many benefits, like our magazines, discounts to partners, opportunities to travel with us. You can get information at aba.org slash join. Special shout-outs this week to Thomas Bruzen of Mount Prospect, Illinois, Stephen Jarvis of Fayetteville, Arkansas, Lynn Risser, also 
of Fayetteville, Arkansas, Lisa Poole of West Dundee, Illinois, Susan Davies of Fishers, Illinois, Adair and Eric Bach of Reelsville, Indiana, Judith Kaysinger of Hilton, New York, and Christine Florian of Castle Valley, Utah, all of whom recently joined the ABA Note of the Podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much. It really does make us feel good to know that people are joining the organization because of what we are doing here. Technical production is by John Lowry, who has begun referring to all those slightly soft reports of Arctic Loon on the Atlantic coast. You know what I'm talking about if you live over here uh, as Loonanon. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who are training a mute swan to answer basic math questions. I'm not sure whether it's by flapping its wings or tapping its webbed foot, uh, but they're calling it Swan. You can find us online at ABA.org and on social media most everywhere as American Birding Association or on Twitter as at ABA. A point of pride for me is that I have never taken a winter pelagic out of Hatteras, North Carolina without encountering a great skua. I know odds are pretty good for that species at that time of year, but you know, you never know on pelagics and you're never that far away from the dreaded skuanon phenomenon. Questions, comments can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy. Until next week.